Welcome everyone to Los Libertinos podcast. I am your host, Carlos Abelard, and this is Chingasos and Fire episode 29. Our guest today is Nadish Shivashankar. He is a graphic designer, a musician, an intellectual, a cultural commentator from the post-structuralist point of view. He's a homie that I've known for over a year from Renegade University. Lately, we've been interacting weekly at the Renegade University men's group. But the reason that I uh, reached out to him for an interview is because I wanted to pick his brain because he uh, knows a lot of shit about a lot of topics. And also because he just started a new Substack called A Book Unbound. And I want to know more about it. Uh, welcome, Nid. Hey, thanks, Carlos, for having me on. I'm excited. Um, yeah, man. So you uh, have seen the show. So you know how the first bit here goes. And that is to kind of give a background uh, of yourself. Uh, you know, um, you're born, raised, your uh, siblings, your education, and kind of like, uh, you know, your, your, your background there so that people know what's up with, uh, with Nid here. Yeah. So, uh, I, I live in Massachusetts. Like I've, I grew up here, obviously, uh, family's Indian. Um, not like that much education wise. I actually dropped out of high school. I got a GED. I took a couple semesters of college. Um, yeah, I, the whole education system just like never really clicked for me. And then I'm like 28 and yeah, I felt like you did a really good job, uh, like describing sort of all the stuff I'm into, like graphic design, music, like intellectual stuff. And yeah, uh, no siblings. So only, you're, a, you're an, uh, only an only child. Yeah. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Cool, man. So, um, yeah, the, like I, like I mentioned, we, uh, interact, uh, mostly through, uh, are you, uh, renegade university and sometimes we'll shoot some texts to each other, uh, mostly just, uh, bullshitting a little bit, but, um, yeah, man, I reached out to you to uh, kind of pick your brain a little bit because I think sometimes uh, you have a lot of interesting point of views. And although sometimes uh, we've discussed that you always uh, respectfully will point out some of the point of views, like who they come from and all that, uh, I hope on this interview I get more of you and uh, – and less of them, but uh, I also understand why you do it, or we can talk about that too. But um, yeah, in the most recent uh, uh, time that we talked, uh, actually, we talked in the men's group yesterday, but we had a, another session, I think a week ago. Anyway, um, the topic had come up of, uh, a topic came up that I found interesting, and I wanted to start off with, because I think it might set the tone for the conversation, because it might kind of uh, maybe uh, 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 lay out also what is like structuralism and post-structuralism because I don't know what that is. I uh, lightly read on it, but uh, so I want to hear your take, but I want to ask you through the point, uh, through the context of the question of why you were ready to die for the question of whether Penelope Cruz or Selma Hayek, uh, you know, what, what, so you know who I picked, and I know who you picked. Why do you think I picked the one I picked, and I haven't? So you know, um, why? Can you kind of describe why that's something that you said you were ready to fight? With? I know it's playing around, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, you know, uh, what is it about those two Dude, females that uh, you know 
you know, made you, uh, you know, get ready to throw some chingazos. Yeah, dude, that's hilarious. Yeah, you said yesterday when we were talking that you had a good opening question for me. Dude, I was thinking about, I was like, man, what's he, is he going to like nail me on something? Like what's going on? But I I never would have expected you to bring this up. That's hilarious. Um, You know how I do. You know how I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So Salma Hayek versus Penelope Cruz. Man, all right. So here's the thing. I've just, I don't know. I've never gotten the hype about Salma Hayek. I'm sorry. I I know you're, I know you said you like her and stuff. It just, uh, for, for it like never appealed to me, I guess. Um, I remember like watching South Park. Did you ever watch that South Park episode where like Cartman's got like a, a hand girlfriend and he's like, he calls her Salma Hayek? Oh, I think I did. I don't remember exactly how it went, but yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, dude. I, I remember like looking her up back in the day and being like, eh, not, not, not really for me. But, uh, but yeah, I don't know. I guess like Spanish actresses, like, like those are their main two, right? Like, are there other, uh, I don't there know. It might be a couple more, but yeah, the main, the, the, in the last 20 years, Probably for sure, like they're the most uh, recognizable, I guess, right? Names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know, dude. I I like that Penelope Cruz type, I guess. Like I like like skinny, like big eyes, like just like very like like pretty, like nice looking. Um, but Salma Hayek kind of has that like dominant like milf energy. Um, and so like it, it's hard to say. It's funny that you that you are saying like maybe why is it that you picked one and I picked the other and. It's interesting. I heard somebody like a little while ago say that like all conservatives like women with big tits and all liberals are ass men. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe uh, what do you think about that? Does that have something to do with it? I don't know. I mean, uh, I think that I went straight for the milk. Oh yeah. But, but also, I, I you know I think that sometimes like I, I get Penelope Cruz. I, I get it. So to me, it's more like she's. You 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 have to really look at her to appreciate her compared to the big old tetas right in front of you. You know, you know, you have to look around the 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 uh, Hayek's. And I was just maybe thinking that that is maybe why you know you sometimes maybe have a view of the world that makes you look around the obvious like stuff right uh-huh. in front. And maybe you look, you know, you look behind the curtains a little bit on stuff or 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 you move a little bit of the titties, you know, so you can kind of see what's up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. yeah. No, I mean, that's that's really kind of you to like me to, to say that that's where my mind's going. I don't think so. Yeah, for me. Dude, yeah. So let's hear it. Let's hear it. I, I'm just, dude, I just that, that's my type. Like I I never really thought I had a type. But then like a couple like like probably like a couple years ago, like I made like an account on a porn site just to like save my favorites. And then I was just like looking over it one day and I was like, shit, all these girls look the same. So I don't know. <laughs> for, for, for me, it's just uh, like, I, I feel like I have a type and she she's like very much my type and just like Spanish girls in general. I dude, something interesting. Like I never knew this, but apparently like Indian people are also Caucasian. Right. And what does that yeah. mean? So yeah, I mean, what, what, what do you mean by that? Go ahead. So like Caucasian typically like on the on like the forms that you fill out and stuff like uh, you, you you see Caucasian and then you just think like white guy, right? Like white guy from Europe. But um, apparently like so like half of India, basically what happened was a few thousand years ago, there was immigration from like Eastern Europe. And those guys, they basically they went down into Iran and India. They also went down into like Greece and they also like went over to the left, like Italy and um like uh parts of ireland and stuff so that's why like uh there's some irish people who have like a, like darker complexions and um also why yeah basically like if you look at indian people like there's there's distinctly like aryan indians and dravidian indians and they come from 
they, they generally come from different parts of the country. I don't know what, what the difference between Aryan and the other one yeah, you said. Yeah, yeah. So um, basically, like, uh, in, in simple terms, like, A- Aryans, they look like they have more, like, white face, facial features, like, more European looking. Like, uh, like if, if you went up to, like, Italy or, like, a, like the Eastern Mediterranean stuff, you would see people with the skin color that's pretty close to mine, like, a little bit lighter, but still but pretty close. And, uh, but then, like, the Dravidian people, uh, they're, they're actually related to, like, uh, Australians, like, indigenous Australians. So, basically, like, you have India sort of in the middle, and then you have, like, one group of people coming from, like, the water, and then one group who came from the north. And, uh, yeah, typically, it's, like, North Indian versus South Indian. But I'm actually South Indian, but I have more of like the, the Aryan thing. So, so yeah, because w- the reason why I brought all that up, though, is because um, w- when I was growing up, I was always like, man, I love like Persian women and Spanish women. And like, all, and I was always like, man, that's weird that like, I'm not that into like Indian women, like particularly, like I never really thought about it. And then I found that out and I was like, oh, we're like, we're like cousins, right? mm. like, like racial cousins or whatever. So yeah. yeah, I always thought that was interesting. And you think that's why? I mean, you 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 saw the 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 structure, the facial structures, or the that maybe that yeah. it was. A- I I think like a lot of the time people are. I, I don't want to say people are attracted to like their own race because I, I don't think that's true. I don't even really think race is like a real thing. Like like even when I'm talking about this stuff, I'm talking just about like ethnicities and families and like groups of people, like not really race in like the 19th century sense. But um, but yeah, so I I think that like a lot of the time people do have types and they just have sort of like something that they see reflected in them. And that can happen like cross-racially for sure. Uh, I just think it's like slightly less common, like generally. So I, I think, yeah, it's just like the facial structure and like the bones. And do do you think, thing. but do you think it's less common because of like, fa- like, like family pressures to stop it rather than like if, if there wasn't any of those type of pressures and you just put a bunch of people of all kinds of people, would they, would they go towards or would they just go to wherever they feel? Yeah, they- I don't. So, like, obviously, I grew up in Massachusetts, and my family's Indian. And uh, here, uh, we, we actually do have, like, a lot of Indian people. We have a lot of, like, Asian people because of the tech industry. And, um, yeah, so growing up, I always, like, I never felt that sort of pressure because I grew up in a relatively, like, urban environment, right? Um, well, technically suburban, right? But, uh, but yeah, like, I, I dated all, all sorts of races and stuff. So yeah, it's not like something that I feel personally, like very strongly about, like I can, there, there's definitely women from like every, like, like any type of uh, like person. I, I've, I've seen like beautiful, like Asian woman, black woman, like, well, whatever. Um, but, but yeah, I don't know. Like, cause in urban spaces too, I guess the question is like how much, Cause, cause that's like the only place, right? Cause if you were like out in the countryside, you would only see people who look just like you, you, you have to go over to like urban spaces. And then I think classically, like, yeah, you'd have like a Polish neighborhood and like a German neighborhood and like all that stuff. And, and there probably would have been a lot of uh, like community pressure. Cause even though you're in an urban space, you're, you're in like a little pocket within, within this urban space that is more people who are like you. Man, it's hard to say though. I, so I guess you're asking me, like, is it more customary? Like, it's it's just easier. Like, like maybe uh, if you were like some guy in in a city and like you saw somebody of a different race than you, like maybe it just wouldn't occur to you to want to date them. Even if you found them attractive, you would just think that like it wouldn't be socially acceptable or something. Well, I would 
think so, right? Because of all, like, you know, I mean, how hard was it for like a black and white person to back in the day? And, you know, those, a lot of those people are probably still like the old schoolers or some of them are probably still alive or maybe some great grandparents to some, you know, I mean, I, I don't, I mean, I'm just guessing, I, I guess it would be. Yeah. 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 But so I wonder, like, could, could you push that back though? Cause then could, would you, would you say that because it's typical for people to date within their own race that like the, the, the community at large feels like that's, what's appropriate because like for them, like the community at large, they feel like they're generally more attractive people of their own race. So they also want you to feel like that. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, and, and then it goes cultural because in my community, uh, <laughs> if you don't have papers and you get a white girl with papers that you you've hit the lottery dude <laughs> you're like oh mira you know like, the, the, the next question is even if she's like not attractive she's very attractive if she has papers you know right <laughs> uh that's mean well i mean i'm just telling you the truth I thought, like, that's yeah, the way yeah. it is <laughs> yeah i hear you that's, that's funny. funny um so yeah hey uh uh moving along a little bit you're uh um uh, I've heard you, and this is cool because I know that uh, uh, I've interviewed him, and you've, uh, and I know you respect him. Like, uh, and I asked him the kind of this question about like, um, and this is uh, Daniel Coffin is the one I'm talking about, and um, and I thought he had a cool uh, response because uh, I tend to like a lot of what he says and kind of a lot of the stuff you say because even though you're writing a Substack and you know, it requires reading it, which, uh, you know, as we've talked before, uh, you know, that I'm not a really good reader and, uh, it's just hard for me to, to get the concepts by, by reading them. Uh, it, it, I just struggle with it. Um, I, I, I do like the idea when I hear it, it kind of sounds, uh, everybody has their own take, but that's, uh, Nietzsche's uh, will to power. Can you kind of give, um, uh, your perspective of, of what that means to you and also kind of, um, how and if how that influences you uh some on uh, some of the work that you do sure so yeah i guess to like even ask me that question like you must be aware that a lot of different people like sort of come at that like in a lot of different ways um so yeah i i think that nietzsche has been like bastardized a lot by people who are essentially just using him for political clout or um like sort of just taking the ideas like kind of piecemeal and not really kind of recognizing like the whole of what he's trying to offer and he even has this line like uh the worst readers are those who behave like plundering troops like they go in and storm the cat they just like take little bits and pieces here and there but they're but they're never concerned about like the whole idea of what's being presented and that's what i like about caffeine is i i think he is like somebody who's fundamentally interested in the ideas and like uh he calls himself a sophist uh meaning that sophists are people who would study the technique of argumentation in order to like win debates, but they weren't philosophers because they didn't necessarily love knowledge. But I think what's great about Coffin's approach is that because he's a sophist, he's studying like the arguments that are being presented by Nietzsche and he's not necessarily like just trying to fit it into some political box or another, another political box. Like, like anytime Nietzsche gets brought up, like people want to talk about the connection between Nietzsche and the Nazis. And then there'll be some socialist that says like, no, actually like Nietzsche was a leftist. And then, like, everybody, like, wants to say something about him, like, as, as if they want to just, like, claim him and, like, kind of segregate him. And, and I think that's what's special about Nietzsche and, like, postmodernists is it's it's just hard to do that. 
uh, like and to actually like account for every little piece that's in their philosophy because that's they're not thinking in terms of boxes and they're and obviously like being germans from 150 years ago they're not they're not thinking in the boxes that we're thinking in which is like modern progressives versus conservatives and like uh all, all like the cultural divides that we're living under so as far as like the wealth to power is an idea yeah i mean it gets it gets like uh smeared because people hear the word power and generally speaking like when people think power they're, they're thinking in two terms either they're thinking like a physicist and they're thinking like power and like the technical definition like work done over time or they're thinking political power like uh being the president and like making demands and like creating wealth redistribution or, or whatever it is. And that's really not uh, the concept, but unfortunately because it's such an easy like uh, connection to make a, a lot of people who are in like far right uh, circles. Um, yeah. Th that That's how they want to interpret it. Like they want to think about Nietzsche as being like aristocratic in the sense that, power means domination and power means like uh, creating order. And I think that if you read Nietzsche, it, it it won't actually be consistent with, with what he says, because while he does talk about like aristocracy and he talks about sort of, he, he is an elitist. Like he always talks against the rabble. He always talks against the mob. He says like one should stay out of churches where it's accustomed to stink. And you always smell, and he talks a lot about his nose. So he's like, anytime I go near a crowd, it like smells bad is like his, is, is his feeling. And so yeah, in that sense, yeah, he's, he's, he's not an egalitarian by any measure. And in Zarathustra, like he talks about Kings and, but like when he talks about Kings, he's talking about them as being like these idealized figures, like they're role models. They're not people who necessarily bring order and bring like justice and do all these things. Rather, there's somebody that you see and you want to emulate. So, so for Nietzsche, like this concept of an elite is not necessarily connected to political power. Like he wouldn't consider like Hillary Clinton to be an elite. Um, he might consider somebody like JFK to be an elite, but definitely not like anybody who just has political power wouldn't be enough to be considered an elite. I don't think that he would consider somebody like Hitler an elite or Stalin or any of these people. Um, and, and we can get more into that later, but, but I, I think like the correct interpretation of the will to power is the idea that life needs an aim when you're living, it's very hard to do nothing. Like if you think about something like meditation, dude, it's real hard to just like sit still for half an hour or, and even if you like your mind's going to race. And that's why like a lot of people who do meditation, they say like, meditation isn't doing nothing it's bringing your mind back when it wanders so Nietzsche basically noticed that there were these types of people that he was sort of confounded by like he was really confused he saw these people oh, hold on. So, so so he's saying that the natural state of your mind is to always be wandering therefore to meditate is to bring it back to so, so I'm, I'm saying that it's hard to not do something right and so Nietzsche wasn't talking about meditation but i'm just giving meditation sure 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 people. yeah and yeah, so for, for, for yogis, yeah, they, they would say that the natural state of the mind is to be like a monkey. Like that's what in Buddhism, they call it the monkey mind. It's like, it's natural for it to always be like jumping around. Mm. And in meditation, what you're doing is like, you're bringing it back. And then when you, when you brought it back and it's under your control, that's not necessarily meditation, but it's when it goes and then you grab it again and you notice that it went, that's what meditation is, mm. is, is what a lot of them will say. I never heard, I never heard of it that way, described that way. That's interesting. It yeah, almost it, sounds like uh, if you're living your life and you know, so when you say grab it back, you mean grab back any type of thought or idea that 
could have got you into trouble. And so you had the discipline to, to rein it in. Is, is that- uh, so the, the idea is that while you're sitting like in meditation and you're trying to keep your mind clear at that moment, your mind is going to start to wander. And then you have to like intentionally be like, okay, my mind wandered. And then just like bring it back. Okay. So then, so then, uh, okay. So my bad, I interrupted you. So then, so then, so then we'll keep, keep going. I'm sorry. So, so, so the reason why I gave meditation as an example is to say that there is this natural tendency for, for life, just in, like any living thing, like it's always sort of like dynamic and moving. And if you try to bring it back, like if you try to meditate, like it's hard and that's why it's hard is because there is this natural like flow that's always sort of happening. And Nietzsche noticed these people, he called them ascetics. Uh, basically, like Jesus Christ would be an example of an ascetic. Like there, uh, some guy who like goes and meditates in the forest for 40 years would be an ascetic, right? And he sort of like looks at them and he's like kind of wondering, like, what's up with that? Like, why, why would somebody want to do that to themselves? Like, uh, we live in this world where you could do like anything, you could do anything, right? Like you could become Alexander the Great, like you could you could uh, have lots of sex and do lots of drugs. Like you could be like a real, like strict conservative type person. You could do anything, but these people intentionally choose to not do like, and that's like the defining characteristic of asceticism. And that's what meditation is. It's not thinking it's bringing things back. And then uh, if you're an ascetic, like they'll, they'll do things for the sake of testing their discipline. Like for example, in India, there's this city called Varanasi that has a lot of uh, spiritual like heritage to it. And I remember watching this documentary and there was this one guy who had his arm over his head and he had it there for like 30 years or, or something like that. Right. And, and so there's basically, for real, for real, for real. Yeah. yeah for, for real. Meaning like he, like his, his arm was like all knurled up and shit. Cause it was just like, it was just limp. Like, uh, like his, his, his hand was like this and it was like c- kind of messed up because you could tell he hadn't moved it for like a long time. And yeah, it was just all limp. Or if you consider like some yoga poses, like the flexibility, like when you really like curl yourself up into a pretzel and I'm not talking necessarily about just like the average thing that like a soccer mom will do, but I'm talking about like when you really take it to an extreme, right? And like essentially like what are you doing? Like you're numbing yourself. Like for example, there's yoga poses where you put pressure on like uh, basically on your taint. And if you put enough pressure there. What that is? What is that? Oh, uh, that's like, uh, it's, it's in between your balls and your anus. Right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You like, uh, you, the way you sit, like you, you put a bunch of pressure, like on, on there with your heels, right? Like, like you sit with your feet under you, right? And okay. you put a bunch of pressure there. And then what that does is it like cuts off blood flow to your junk. So you don't get like tempted by sexual thoughts. What the fuck? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so the point is like, well, that's the thing, right? Like you, you're listening to that and you're going, what the fuck? And that's how Nietzsche felt. He's like, man, what the fuck? Like, wh- why are these people doing things that are so blatantly just like, what's the point of this? Right. And yeah, his conclusion was that like, what they're doing is they're willing nothingness. And that that's what happens is like, you humanity or just like life in general needs some purpose so bad that people who don't want to like commit to anything, they'll even will nothingness because they can't help but will something. And that's what the will to power is about. It's it's about the idea that like you always need some aim. Like you can never just be satisfied with like what you've got. Like life in its very essence is something dynamic and changing and you can't uh, ever just like uh, sit still. And if you try to sit still, that's what happens. You become an ascetic and it's it's hard to do that too. And so it's like there's something inherent to life about willing and that's what the will to power is. What in your past memory 
what situation do you remember where you willed yourself into, I don't know, life goal or a situation or willed yourself out of a situation? Like, have you ever had a, 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 a moment where even if it wasn't the, at the standard of willing that you'd might want to be one day or not, but something that you consider yourself, man, I willed myself yeah, dude, to. I'll, I'll, I'll give you like a great example of exactly this. Cause essentially what Nietzsche is talking about is like, is what is happiness? Like what is satisfaction? Like what, what does it mean to sort of feel accomplished and feel like you're like in a stable, good place. And, and, and the flip side of that is like, what does it mean to like want something, right? Like what does it mean to like pursue and chase? And yeah, I'll get, I'll give you a great example. Like I remember, uh, so I'm 28 right now. I was 18. I was, uh, so like I said earlier, I dropped out of high school. I got out of GED. I started going to college. I went to one semester at community college. I transferred to an architecture school, which is like uh, like an hour away. So I had my own apartment and I felt really badass, dude. I was like 17. I was living on my own in the city. I had my own apartment. I was going to college. Um, I was just like, I felt like a little bit ahead of everybody. And then I was, I was good too. Like, uh, it really clicked for me, like design and all this stuff. Like I, I enjoyed learning about architecture. And so my second, yeah, my second semester, I was, uh, in, in my new, I was in like a, another apartment and I, I had been there for a little while at that point. And I remember I just like got home this one day and I was just sitting around and I had this feeling like, all right, like if I, if I just keep at what I'm doing, um, in a couple of years, I'm already sort of performing like sort of really well relative to the rest of my class. Um, in a couple of years, I'll get like a nice architecture job. And then like, I'll be able to pay off my student loans because uh, the school I was going to had like a special program for that type of thing. And um, yeah, I'll be, I'll be set for the rest of my life. Dude, as soon as I had that thought, I felt miserable. I was like, man, that is so fucking boring. I can't, I can't believe I just like backed myself into this hole this way. And like, I just felt like really sad. Like as soon as I had that thought of like, I fucking like I left high school. I uh, I'm like a little bit ahead of everybody I know. I I like I'm like doing all this stuff. I'm like moving forward of my own volition. Like I'm like pushing ahead. And now like I finally got to this place where I can just coast. As soon as I realized that, I was like, man, what the fuck? Do I even want to go through with this? Like th this whole thing just seems so planned out and bleak. And I couldn't like put it into those words at the time, but that was like basically like the feeling I had. It just, as soon as I realized that I was just like, man, like I, I just felt like kind of dead inside. Like I just like put myself into a box because I was in such a rush. Cause, cause when you're a kid, I feel like, especially if you're like a teenage boy and, and you don't particularly like, like school or like the school environment or like, you know, like you kind of have an ego and like, Oh, these teachers are fucking idiots. I could do their job better. Like if you're, if you kind of like feel that way, you're in such a rush to get out that you don't think about what you're getting into. And then once I like thought about like, Oh, sh I just like put myself into this box where I can be a stable adult for the rest of my life. And now I'm finally there or like I, I can get there. I just, I, I, I didn't want to do it anymore. And then I just like, that was, that was the beginning. And then like, uh, basically like that feeling of anxiety and frustration and like, I'm putting myself into a box and all that stuff. It just kept growing for a couple of years. And then I was like super depressed and uh, yeah, I, I had to ba basically go from there and like be basically start from zero. Cause at the time, all I was thinking about was getting out of something. Right. All I was thinking about was not being a teenager anymore, not, not being at the mercy of these like school administrators, not being under my parents wing or, or all that stuff. As, as soon as I had it, I was like, fuck, all I did was get out. And now I'm in another box. 
And then I had to like reset everything and like really think about like what it meant to be an adult and what my values were and like where I wanted to go in life and, and all that stuff. And um, but I'm I'm hearing you, but I'm uh, not following the will to power. So you willed yourself to get out at an early age, and you willed yourself out of a of, of a bleak future. Or, or, or what? What do you? Uh, is that kind of what? Yeah. So I, I guess my point is that. Um, as soon as I felt like I had something, that will to power sort of triggered. And it was like, wait a second. If it's that easy, you don't actually want it anymore. And so th that's kind of what I'm saying. And okay. Yeah. And okay. so I was willing to sort of like take that complacency. And like, I mean, obviously, I wasn't immediately willing because like the depression had to sort of like grow a little bit. But yeah, it's like once that sort of like grew in me then I was willing to like take all of that consistency and risk-free existence that I'd like built up and just like throw it away and be like, all right, I can't do that. And, and, that, and that was basically like that, that inner spark that Nietzsche was talking about, basically pushing me to actually be like everything I can be rather than just like uh, being like a, a small portion of, of what, I, of what I could have been. Okay. Yeah, no. Um, yeah. That's interesting. And, um, and that same will to power then, made you you know get out of your depression or was that that you were able to find a a rhythm out of it because like to me too like uh like uh uh rhythms in 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 ideas or in life uh you know kind of get you on the front foot out of things or you know how do you how did you get out of uh something like that especially and i want to talk about a little bit because right now a lot of times right now with all this covid stuff there's a lot of people that you know, uh, you know, are feeling depressed or whatever, but, you know, it's always good to hear stories about how people got out of it. So, you know, how did you kind of, uh, get out of that a little bit? Oh man, it's yeah. Cause so, so the way you were just talking about that, like, um, getting into a rhythm and then letting that like get you on your front foot and you can sort of like see your way out of it. Yeah. That, that wasn't my experience. Like my experience was like slow. It, it was like really, really, really slow. And where that slowness came from was basically like, so I, I can't speak for like depression generally. I, like I, I wish I could, but uh, I'm not sure. But, but for me personally, I, I guess it was just that I wasn't living up to my potential and I had to like sort of figure out what that meant. Like, wh what does it mean to apply yourself? Like, like where wh is it just when you're working hard? Like, like if you work really hard, but you never work smart, are you really like applying yourself? Right. Like, or like, uh, what does it mean to get a reward? Like, wh what should you feel rewarded by? Like, if, if like you meet some like pretty girl and she wants to hook up with you, like, is, is that like a, re a reward? Like, is that, is that, cause so yeah, I guess like the depression that I felt, uh, a lot of it is like still with me, but I feel like I've sort of overcome the majority, but it's, it's like, it's, it's a slow process. Like you get, you get, you can sort of like grapple with and wrestle with like a little chunk. And then you can kind of, it's like untying like a big, like ball of yarn. That's like all knotted up. It's like, you, you kind of just have to take it like one knot at a time and mm. eventually kind of unravel it. And where I am right now, like if, if the ball was like this big before, it's probably like, like this big right now. Like I'm pretty chill. Like now, nowadays, like I don't, I don't feel like anything nearly like as hopeless as I felt at that time. But, but yeah, so when I was, so yeah, let me backtrack a little bit. Like when, when I was in middle school, right? Like, uh, I was really good at guitar. Like I, I, st I still am really like, that, that was like my first, that was like the, the main thing that made me feel like if I put my mind to something, I can actually like really achieve something. 
And I've done that in like more domains since then. But guitar was definitely like my first love in that capacity. Um, and I was listening to like a lot of like Metallica, like Iron Maiden, Guns N' Roses, uh, Led Zeppelin, all, all that sort of stuff. So when I was in, in eighth grade, I distinctly remember having this thought that like, man, like sex, drugs and rock and roll is like what it's about. Like that's like what's fun in life. Like that's that's like the, the best shit. And then, yeah, so those were like the values that I was kind of going by. It was like, okay, like what makes you like feel good? Like, what do you enjoy? Like, what do you not enjoy? And then when I was in college, like several years later, and I was sort of at the peak of that depression, I remember I was at this party and it was cool. And like, uh, there was some girls there that I'd known, uh, that I'd seen around a couple of times. And one of them was like, definitely interested in me. And then I was just like, I was, I was just like hanging out. Right. Like I was just, and then just this like wave of frustration, like suddenly came over me and I just like left the party and just started walking around and it's the city. So I didn't have to like drive or anything. I was just like walking and so I got to this park and I was just, I just remember feeling like so pent up and like frustrated and like, like angry. And there was this like, there was this tennis court with this, with this like big fence. I was just like, man, I'm just going to climb this fucking fence right now. <laughs> just, just, just let me see if I could do it. And I just like climbed all the way up this like tennis court fence, like probably like 20 feet and just like climbed down the other side just for no reason. I just like, I just felt so like pent up. And uh, what I'm saying is like, I was, I was living like a sex drugs and rock and roll. I was living in like this part of Boston where like all the hipsters live. And like, if you want to do like ketamine or if you want to do like cocaine or like, if you want to like, you can basically do whatever you want. And like, nobody's even going to judge you. Like you can fucking be like throwing up on the sidewalk because you got like too much to drink. Nobody's even gonna like look twice at you. Cause it's, it's just that kind of like a really like a, uh, like hipstery type of an environment. And I was just going to these parties and like, I was trying to have a good time and I just never could. I, I just like, the more I tried to have a good time, the more I tried to like drink and like get high and like uh, just like have fun, the more frustrated I felt. And it sort of like culminated in in that moment where I just like, I just got like real pent up. I just like fucking left and I saw this obstacle and I just like decided to climb that obstacle just because it was an obstacle. And, and th- yeah, that was like the beginning for me. Uh, that's when I kind of realized I was like, yeah, just pleasure. Like uh, just kind of like, doing what makes you feel good is, is not actually like enough. Like it's not enough spiritually. Like, like it's, it's not about like morality or any of that stuff, but it's just like, if you, if you have some type of a drive, like that's too soft of a target and it's, it's just not enough. And yeah, that, that's where it started. Yeah. And uh, you going over that fence and seeing that obstacle in front of you um, gave you a new like perspective um, is, is, does the obstacle have to be in front of you out of your control or do you have to put obstacles in front of yourself to check yourself uh, uh, sometimes? Yeah, I I think it's the latter. And yeah, I think that's kind of like the essence of that story is like, I, yeah, like the obstacle was in front of me, but I willingly, I didn't have to climb that. Like I could, if I really, if I wanted to, if the point was to be inside the tennis court, I could have just walked over to where the door was. Right. But that was the point. It was like, it was like, yeah, I had to check myself a little bit. And yeah, that's dude, honestly, like the thing that has made me feel the best, not feel the best. Like the thing that's like healed me the most is checking myself, like consistently checking myself. And it's interesting because psychologists talk about this thing in the brain. They call it the default mode network. It's basically, uh, if you ever, if you've ever had this feeling of like shame, or if you've ever had this feeling of like, 
oh man, maybe I shouldn't have, like anything that sort of gets you to like withdraw into your mind. Hey, I'm a, I'm a Mexican that drinks too much, dude. Yes. <laughs> right. So, so it's like that next morning feel you, you're kind of like, yeah, you're like looking at yourself and you're kind of like, man, why did I do that? Right. So, so that's a function of the default mode network, according to psychologists. And yeah, it's interesting because they basically say that like a hyperactive default mode network is the cause of depression. So they're saying that like, when mm. you check, when you're looking at yourself too much, that's when you kind of cause depression. But my experience has actually been that like, it's when you're, when you're in that gray zone between like looking at yourself and not looking at yourself enough that you get depression out of it. I, th- I think that like the function of that default mode network, sort of like putting you in that state of looking at yourself is so that you really look at yourself, like is so that you actually like really pay attention to what it's telling you so that you actually resolve what that issue is. I don't think it's enough to just say that like, oh, you're depressed because that thing is hyperactive. I, I think it's hyperactive because it's trying to teach you something. And yeah, like, so for me, even though they say that like looking at yourself too much is the cause of depression, for me, like looking at myself was the, the way out of it. Mm. Yeah, man, that's, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The checking yourself is definitely always a, a big part of, you know, uh, you know, check, you know, check to check yourself. It 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 uh it, uh can uh unfold uh naturally in that you 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 see yourself for what you are I guess but also you can see your like your 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 faults and and you also see what you're what what's going good so yeah man um yeah that's that, that's an interesting uh, uh story uh, I had never heard that from you and uh, you know thank you for sharing it that way um hey what's up everyone. Visit BUenterprises.com. BU is a company that helps you with relaxation, stretches, and breathing techniques that you can implement in your daily life. I have been using them for over three months now. And even though with the holidays that just passed, some of uh, my classes I was not able to make uh, due to a lot of uh, uh, not having enough time to, to do it, whatever I had learned in previous sessions, I was still able to do them, uh, throughout the Christmas and new year's break. Um, and I still feel very good. Um, one of the main stretches that I use is in my truck when I'm at a stop sign, that's been a game changer to be able to do some of my shoulder rolls and some of my lower back stretches. And uh, I learned those at uh, buenterprises.com. So if that is something that sounds uh, appealing to you, where you want to try to have a customized uh, program for your your daily life, visit uh, buenterprises.com, sign up for one of their programs. Be sure to use the promo code CHINGASOS, in all caps, C-H-I-N-G-A-S-O-S, CHINGASOS. For 20% off of your purchase. Um, once you sign up, use them, email me, let me know how it's going. We can exchange some uh some of the uh some tips. I want to know how you guys are doing. So uh please visit buenterprises.com and use the promo code Chingasos, all caps, and uh I'll see you on the on the next one. Peace. So you uh, consider yourself a post-structuralist. Uh, I've never heard of that term. I I read it on your uh, substack there, on your description. Uh, so what is structuralism and then what is post-structuralism? Because uh, 
I'm telling you now, man, my primos, they've, if I've never heard of it, they've never fucking heard of it. So uh, kind of please give the history of it and then where the post came in. Please. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it, it the reason why I use that term is uh, it, it wasn't even like really a term that was too familiar to me. But I remember I just like saw that term somewhere. And then like underneath it, there was all the philosophers that I liked. And I was like, oh, OK, I, I guess I guess I'm one of them then. So so uh, that's like my but me personally, that's how I kind of like got to use that term. And um, what what was nice about it is that like if, like let's say I use like the term postmodern, or if I use the term existentialist, which which are like slightly more common terms, um, they sort of exclude other things that I do like. But poststructuralism was like a really really big umbrella. It, it seemed like so um, the term structuralism. Uh, if I remember correctly, it comes out of the early 1900s and it, it comes out of linguistics. It's essentially like a, uh, it's, it's a way of looking at language and a way of looking at like interpretation that biases like signs. Like it says that like, uh, if, if I say like a uh, plant, cause there's a plant right in front of me and I, th- I think like pot, right? Like you, you would, ju- you would see this, you would hear the sign, the word pot. And then in your mind, there would be a signified which is like the actual pot. So, so there's this concept of a sign and a signified, like a signifier and a signified. So it's like uh, the sign always points to something. Okay. And then uh, that's, that's like the basis of a structuralist analysis. Um, the, the interesting thing that happens with postmodernists that come like uh, 50, 60 years later is they stop saying the sign points to something. They say like the sign starts to point to other signs. Like for example, if you look up a word in the dictionary, you get other words, right? So it's like the word points to other words. And so it's it's very hard to say like, what's the original meaning of this word? It's like, oh, I, I don't know. And then like, uh, so what, what I was just describing was Derrida. He came up with this concept of like signs pointing to other signs. And then it's like, okay, if I want to understand the sign, how do I do it? The only way you can is through the history, which is Foucault, which is which is why like, I think Thad loves Foucault is like, he, he just breaks down the history of stuff. And then he kind of like lets lets you make up your own conclusions. And so where the post comes from is basically saying that instead of like there being concrete messages, concrete ideas, it's saying that like, okay, in order to understand a thing, you have to understand like the way that thing came about and sort of the context of that thing and all the interrelations, like the way in which it connects to other stuff. That's how you can actually understand something. It's not enough to just think in simplistic terms like sign and signified. And uh, the the reason why I consider myself a post-structuralist is that uh, there, so like, as far as I'm aware, like thinkers like Marshall McLuhan and Nietzsche and Derrida and, uh, Deleuze, like, like, but my favorite people are, are going to be like Nietzsche, Deleuze and Marshall McLuhan. And yeah, they're, uh, they all kind of fit under that umbrella in that way of looking at things. Like for example, um, Marshall McLuhan, he, he coined this term, the medium is the message. So for example, like when you're watching television, right? Like, any particular show you watch on TV is kind of filtered by the fact that it's presented to you through a TV as opposed to on a movie screen. And if you just consider like the way in which the environment differs between your living room, particularly with like an old like black and white TV, that's like maybe like this big that like you and your whole family are watching. And you kind of like contrast that with uh, a cinema where you're in a dark room. Uh, you don't know necessarily like anybody who's near you. Uh, there's, there's this like light in front of you, right? Um, it, it's, they're, they're fundamentally different things. And regardless of what, what they're trying to say, it, um, 
the what is always filtered by the how. And that's what the medium is the message means. So it's like television sort of creates a format that sort of changes your way of thinking a little bit. And uh, movies kind of create a format that change your way of thinking a little bit. And the example Marshall McLuhan gives is like the Vietnam War. It was broadcast all over television. And when you're broadcasting horror on like a small screen that everybody's like intimately connected to that's in their living room that they watch with their family, that's like projecting images out onto you. The concept of war becomes a lot more intolerable. And that's why you see like the first anti-war movements. And so essentially like the idea behind post-structuralism is to say that like, oh, there's no concrete things. There's always just like flows and like relationships and in understanding the relationships and the contexts and all the different perspectives is how you can begin to understand something and you can't uh, make any simplistic uh, like uh, deductions. Okay. So um, then you lead right into uh, your Substack. stack, your, uh, uh, the medium there then is is you're writing it and it's and 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 the person's understanding of however they read it is their own uh media uh, media right or or uh so the the medium technically uh so so there's a couple different aspects right like substack is unique in that it sends you an email as soon as the person posts right so that's one aspect but you can always go to their substack and check like the whole back catalog so so that's one aspect of it and then another aspect is the fact that it's online Right. And it's online and it's all text, especially like when we're like interfacing with the Internet, mostly through these devices. These devices are like high resolution. Right. Like uh, they have like pictures, they have video, they have sound, they have whatever you want. But I'm expressing myself purely through text. And it's not Twitter. Right. Because Twitter is only like 140 plus characters now. I don't know how how much the new limit is, but uh, so it's writing and also at it's different from Twitter in the sense that there's not really like a community feeling because you don't necessarily see like likes and retweets or, or any of that stuff. I mean, you might see some comments you might see how many people like something, but if, if you're, if you're one of the people who just get the email, like, uh, and you just see the email and that's it, you would, you would never know like how everybody else responded to something. So that's sort of like the way in which you would analyze Substack from a McLuhan perspective is like, you would sort of say like, okay, like it, it's different in all these different ways. And the reason why those differences are meaningful to me is because I think like when you're reading a Substack, it kind of forces you to use your brain a little more like uh, in the sense that, you know, it's not Twitter. You're not worried about how other people are viewing you. Uh, you're not worried about getting likes and retweets. Um, you know that the people who are receiving your email are people who voluntarily gave you their email, which means you're speaking to a friendly audience for the most part. Um you know that it's people who are willing to read articles, which are longer in length, if if you want to make them longer in length. So there's all these like filtrations that come with that medium that sort of allow for an easier exchange of information. Okay. So, and you prefer that uh, because you want to uh, have the person reading it, uh, have the, what you might what consider like the purest way of how it came out of you you know, through uh, obviously seeing it through through their own perspective because they got to read it through you know and their own life yeah, experiences, yeah. Uh, go through that. But is, is that why? Like, yeah. So, so 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 the word pure is is a little bit tenuous. Uh, I would say the, the thing that's most appropriate, right? Because like I'm I'm writing in text. Uh, I don't want that to be like uh, distracted from so much. 
Like I want that to just be presented as straightforwardly as possible, whether that's pure or not. Like it, it's hard because like, for example, like uh, if I was uh, like, let's say I was also like making like some images or something, I wouldn't use Substack to like post pictures, right? Like that would, that wouldn't really make any sense. So it's like, because I wrote like an article, I just felt like that fit into what Substack was asking for. And it just like fits into that ecosystem really well. And so like pure is like kind of a weird word, but, but yeah, it's like it, I guess it is, it is pure in a sense, like, because there's not a lot of other stuff distracting from what I'm saying. Like, let's say, uh, are you on Facebook? Yes. Yeah. So let's say like, for example, like you took basically like, like an essay that's sort of similar to one of the ones I wrote and you just posted that in your Facebook status. And like, you just like let people read it that way. Like you just posted it on your wall. I haven't been on Facebook since 2013. So I don't know how stuff goes down there anymore, but, uh, but yeah, like imagine if you just posted that to your Facebook, it wouldn't, I mean, maybe more people would see it, but they're not really like in the mood for that type of thing when they're on Facebook. So it doesn't really fit there. Like it doesn't fit on Twitter. Like I just felt like it fit on Substack really well. Yeah. Okay. And well, the pure, like you kind of maybe gave, like you just maybe uh, gave an example of why I said pure is kind of like you, you, you felt the need to show your purity by saying that you haven't been on facebook since 2013 therefore you know so check out my Substack. you know it's more pure kind oh, of maybe. like that so yeah, so, yeah. so that's kind of what i meant by like it's cleaner than mm. twitter right because you reference yeah, yeah. twitter too so that's it but it doesn't mean anything bad but yeah i mean or like you know in, in that way that's, that's what i meant by it but remember like um the way that i say words sometimes might not be the way that no, 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 beca- I, because I, I, uh yeah, i say as I was saying it, I was like, oh, yeah, maybe this is like how he meant it. Because, yeah, it's like halfway through. I so uh, your Substack is called A Book Unbound. How did you uh, come to that uh, uh, that title or that name? I, I don't exactly remember. Like, I, I could analyze it now and tell you why it makes sense. But, like, at, at the time, it just felt – because I guess – it kind of appealed to me personally because um you know how like a lot of artists will have like a sketchbook where they like they put all their drawings and stuff i've always hated the idea of having a sketchbook because you can't take the pages and rearrange them so like what i do is like i don't have a sketchbook i just like have sheets that i just like and then i just like stack them up and then like i kind of i'll go through them later but uh yeah, I, I've never liked the idea of not being able to like rearrange things later. Like I always want to be able to rearrange things. And I think that's sort of where the idea came from is because I'm not presenting a book in any of these articles. I'm not presenting like a coherent, like dense, like 500 page like tome. I'm presenting like a little like fragment, I'm presenting like one thing. And then like you can take all these things or, or like maybe I'm presenting a bigger thing. Like maybe I do like a five part thing, but but it's still like at most, it's like equivalent to one chapter in that book. So that's the sense in which it's like, I'm posting like parts and that's the sense in which it's like a book unbound. Cause I'm not giving you like one thing. I'm giving you like lots of things that are sort of unbound. Yeah, no, I like that, man. That's a, that's, that's cool. Uh, so when we were talking about uh, the, the move, the, whether you watch something through TV or through, uh, or through a movie, uh, that was uh, uh, something that you wrote on your, on your first uh, sub stack, which is like a uh, cinema and storytelling. Um, Let's go through uh, through the rest of them, and then uh, uh, just so people get a feel of, of of what you're putting out there, and so they can decide whether they want to see what's up. Uh, your next one is called uh, on anti-humanism. What was that kind of about? So, on anti-humanism, yeah. So 
this is like this heavily comes out of the way that Nietzsche sort of looked at the world. I mentioned earlier a little bit that like he was an elitist, but he wasn't an elitist in a political sense. He was an elitist in like a spiritual sense. Like he, he really fundamentally believed that like some people were just born for more than other people. And in the modern world that we live in, that's like anathema. Like people hate that concept. Like people hate because. So unfortunately, like words, they, they do get kind of tangled up. Like liberal meant something different a few hundred years ago than it means now. But, uh, but yeah, it's like we live in a world that tried to like mesh liberalism and democracy. Um, and essentially like what it was, it was a reaction against like old school aristocrats. Like it, it was a reaction against this idea of like the king as a father figure, the state as like uh, the guardian and, and all this stuff. And unfortunately, like democracy and liberalism kind of got like mixed together because they were both opposed to the king. But liberalism in the classical sense means like individualism and property rights and, and that sort of stuff and like free spiritedness. Um, the world, the word liberal is actually a cognate of the word literate, which is um, which is interesting because it's like Marshall McLuhan talks about how when books started being printed, what it enabled was it let you learn something without having to know the guy who wrote it. And so what that does is you can go to a library and you can learn about like all this different stuff and it can be whatever you want to learn about, but it gives you an, an individual point of view, which is discreet and unique. And it gives you a point of view, which is maybe unique from like your neighbor or like your brother or all this stuff. Like you could grow up around some, a lot of people. And even though you grew up around them, you wouldn't have a similar point of view to them necessarily because you've had access to books. And so the social kind of gets uh, untethered from the intellectual in a way that never would have happened in an oral culture where if you want to learn something, you have to go to the guy and learn it from that guy. And so the, the, so the word liberal sort of uh, is a cognate of the word literate. And basically it, it, it kind of means free. It's like free to sort of like explore and do what you want. And yeah, so along with that comes like property rights and like intellectualism and like all, all the stuff that sort of comes out of like the scientific revolution and that kind of stuff. And then, so that's obviously opposed to the king, because if you're an individual, then you're not uh, following the king, or, or maybe you would if it's convenient to you, but ultimately you don't see yourself as a member of the party or a member of, of the state. You see yourself as yourself. And then on the flip side, obviously democracy is opposed to the king because he's one guy who's making demands of everybody. And democracy is the logic of the many, which means that, you know, uh, it's not about what the king wants. It's about what's good for, for everybody. Like, right. And so you have like inventions like utilitarianism, which is this philosophy that tries to sort of bridge the gap between the two things. And they say that like, Oh, like uh, you use uh, your scientific mind. And then that allows you to sort of create solutions, which will be the greatest amount of happiness for the greatest number of people. And that in that way, like it sort of tries to bridge the gap between individualism and democracy. Right. And, and there's been all these attempts and basically like the last 300 years is just attempts to bridge the gap. And on anti-humanism is basically saying, no, th this is an unbridgeable gap. Like humanism as a concept is ridiculous. Like the idea that like the idea that the majority or the collective is necessarily or the idea that like because there's no king now there needs to be like a collective authority or, or like any of that stuff. Like it, it's all premised on this idea that like humans naturally are social and that there is a social like so this comes out of rousseau like he says like uh man is born free but everywhere we find him in chains that's how he starts off one of his books and his conclusion is that people by opting into society are forming a social contract so that they don't have to live individual lives and therefore all the 
conclusions of that are, for example, that voting is legitimate because it identifies the collective will. And so like, so he's making all these assertions, like there is such a thing as the collective, there is such a thing as a collective will. He says, like, if you voted against the collective will, that doesn't mean that like, you should be frustrated because you didn't get what you want. Rather, voting was like a tool of figuring out what everybody wanted. And now that we voted and found out you need to change what you want in order to make that what everybody else wanted. Because ultimately, when you're voting, you're not trying to make what you want happen. You're trying to vote for the good of everybody. Right. So there's all this like backwards logic that's like implicit in that. And so there's just this idea that because it's not a king, like democracy and capitalism or democracy and liberalism and all these stuff can go together. And yeah, I'm, I'm just like coming out hard and saying that like, no, like there's people who look at the world in a way that's fundamentally inferior to the way that other people look at the world. And that's really what the content of that essay is about is I'm saying like, There is one way of looking at the world that's like a very vulgar scientific way of looking at the world, which sort of um, it breaks everything down into taxonomies, meaning like uh, if you were to say like human, right, as as a taxonomy, uh, human, and then how could you break up human? You'd probably do it by race. And then you'd say like, oh, like Indian human or like East Asian human or like like whatever. And then you sort of proceed from the general to the specific, like in in this top down manner. And in doing so, it creates all of these mental issues. Like, for example, uh, like we were talking about earlier, like interracial marriage, right? Like if you have like a kid or um, if you have a kid out of wedlock or something, but you're thinking in terms of marriage and then a kid is born out of wedlock, it kind of like disrupts this idea of what marriage is. And so my point is when you're looking at this world taxonomically, what ends up happening is you have predetermined beliefs about how things should be based on how you've already interpreted them to be. And that puts you in a state where you put limitations on yourself because you have an idea of how you ought to behave in a particular instance, rather than kind of like flowing with whatever that moment is and kind of understanding what your own values are. And because of that, people who look at the world through that taxon taxonomical lens are fundamentally inferior to people who don't like that's that's what i'm like really trying to say that that's not the correct way to look at the world because it creates all these side effects and it's essentially like tying yourself up and trying to run a marathon it's like it's just not a great way to look at things and uh so bring that to an example of the real world so what would be an example so uh you walk into a convenience store and you know uh you see uh i don't know uh a black guy uh maybe a, an indian guy at the at the at the at the counter and you know a white guy in a suit mm-hmm. and you're just supposed to see three people uh just buying some uh some beer so what do you, what do you see or am i setting the boxes because i said black Indian and a guy in a suit. I mean, by simply saying that I'm pointing, am I put, am I putting things, but I mean, so I, I uh, how do you not see the world in, in a way where there's these, I guess they, you know, I don't know if, if I'm using the right, like the social constructs of all these little boxes of the definition of, of like stereotypes or they like different things like, like, cause that's part of your programming as you were from, you were a kid to whatever, like how, how can someone not see the world in that way? Or, 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 you know, or how, uh, you know, I guess that's kind of a question there. So, so, all right. So, so the argument in uh, the essay is essentially saying like, so one of the lines is like, 
uh, when you say flower, like, what do you really mean by that? It's like, there's no ideal flower that matches like the one you have in your head that encapsulates all these different flowers. It's more like you look at flowers, you derive some properties from them. And then just for, as a matter of convenience, like we use these words, like as a matter of convenience. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, so in your example, I think like a better uh, thing would be like, let's say you walk into a convenience store and you saw a black guy wearing a suit and you looked at him funny because you're like, black people shouldn't be in suits, right? Like you should look like some gangbanger. Like that, that would be a better example. Okay. Okay. I guess like it's something like that. It's kind of like you're not capable of dealing with the reality of what's currently happening because you're kind of expecting something different and you want things to be consistent with what you expect rather than just kind of dealing with what is. And, uh, so even if somebody's, if even if somebody that you consider them to see it that way, like inferior, it really is a way like for them to come off of that. They have to deprogram like the way that they've thought about things because, you know, uh, I don't know if I'm saying, so let me see, uh, maybe, uh, we could like, uh, freestyle here. I, I, you know, I grew up on like the side of town that was like mostly Latino. And then I had a, a home that I was like an investment property, my first one. And it was on like the black side of town. But, you know, I would go to the Little Caesars here and there was people coming up asking me for money and I didn't get scared. You know, I didn't have my initial. And then on the black side of town, I would mm-hmm. until I until I caught myself and be like, why am I having that? I must, you know, there, there there's no other, real difference other than this programming that I've had to to have this uh, initial reaction uh, to the black person coming to to my to my to my door asking for money and i had to check myself right i had to check myself and then i had to fight the urge over time to not do that until i deprogram myself and i found out that yeah there's this programming that is always going on in society whether it's through the medium of tv or movies or through the uh through laws through different ways that you know um so is it about deprogramming yourself to not uh, see everything in these type of boxes or am I thinking of this in a wrong way or, or am yeah, I? So, uh, I'm not sure if anything I said necessarily like invalidates like what you were just talking about, meaning like, yeah, I mean, if, if you feel uncomfortable in a situation, that, that's fair. Like that's how you feel in that situation, right? Like I don't, I don't have necessary, I don't have like a problem with that inherently. My point is more like when you're talking about the future and you're using your preconceptions to determine what that future must be like, 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 let's say, for example, like, uh, this is kind of like analogous to what you were saying is like, and I'm gonna, uh, real quick, I, I, I'm just I'm caught up, I'm caught up on the word inferior that you yeah, okay. so so I guess I'm trying to find out why, why, you know, then the, I guess so, so, so just so you know, just, just so you know, okay? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so the word inferior, uh, my point is, Let's say, okay, so yeah, like you, you love sports, right? You always talk about it and like you love uh, soccer, football, right? So let's say you have somebody who, um, so bear with me a little bit. It's going to be kind of a sloppy metaphor because I, I don't know the, the details too much. But like, let's say you've got like two players on the field and um, the you've got two teams, okay? Like one team. Or, or pick a sport that you like and or that you know and I, I'll oh, follow I it. No, 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 that's all right. So okay. uh, let's just say you got like two different games going on, right? And you got one team here that's fighting an opponent and another team here that's fighting an opponent. And then, uh, so team one, the coach tells them something like, uh, 
we can expect uh, this type of play from the opposing team. Uh, when when they run this play, I want you to like do exactly this, and you're going to pass it to this guy, and then that's how you're going to get over it, right? And then uh, on the other one, the coach says like, all right, uh, base like we believe that the next the team is going to do something like this, and um, so uh, basically the coach will say kind of the same thing, but he'll say maybe he'll say it like a little softer, like instead of saying like this is what's going to happen, like he'll he'll kind of like to say like we think this is probably going to happen, and then the the first team they're going to start going and then that's the opponent team is going to not do what they expected all right and then in in both games the opponent team is not going to do what they expected and my point is that the people who are better at reacting to the unexpected thing like let's say team a just like runs that play anyway and obviously like it doesn't work cuz the, the opponent didn't do what they expected but team b recognizes what's happening and then just like on the fly um a couple of the players like figure out the best that they can do in that exact situation. And then like they go back to the coach and they're like, yeah, we couldn't run the play because of this. And we did this instead. That's, that would be, that's the sense in which I mean, one is inferior to the other. Cause obviously like the people who aren't paying attention to reality are, and are not able to adapt and think on their feet are obviously like in that sort of like a high stress environment. It's, it's an inferior way of like approaching the game. And so I'm sort of like generalizing that concept. And I'm saying like, if, if you think, for example, that, um, you know, being a woman means you can't drive, right? Like, I, I think that's like in, inferior, like it's, it's cause your, your preconception of like what the category like of woman is. And then you're saying like, oh, like that means that they can't drive. Like, that's not like, if you were to say that, like, they, but, but, but they can't, but, but they don't know how to, drive, but they can't drive. Right. But yeah, that, that's kind of what I'm saying is like, um, if you believe something like in advance and you think that that's necessarily true because the categories, let's say that like uh, being a woman is associated with like femininity and softness and like cooking. And then you think that because of those associations, that means that like this other relationship is impossible. Yeah. I think that that's inferior in the same way that like a soccer team that doesn't uh, pay attention to what the opponent team is doing at that exact moment uh, is, is an inferior. Okay. So someone's inferior if they're imprisoned by a, you know, like a a, a preconceived thought of how something should be. And when life hits them, which is always random and rare, I mean, like it's random and you never know, they don't move whether physically or mentally because they're trapped in that, mind prison of whatever that situation is something like so they're therefore they're inferior and therefore you want to isolate those people or that mindset to to not live amongst them or to just point it out and to say hey better yourself or or therefore what yeah so so therefore like uh like back to what i said earlier democracy versus liberalism like there therefore like if you're like an individualist like you care about like liberty and like all these types of things you are definitely opposed to democracy because the like if you think about like politics like how do people make arguments typically like they'll say something along the lines of like this is the right thing to do or like this is who we are as americans or like all this stuff like essentially hypnosis works on this exact principle and i'm saying that um because this is inferior you can't make claims about overall equality of humans like it it's and so like this, this idea that we, we live in this post-enlightenment world and therefore we believe in capitalism and equality and like blah, 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 blah. No, no, no. These, these are exclusive things and equality and liberty are fundamentally like necessarily opposed.
Okay. Comprendo. I like that. Uh, yeah. So that is why, uh, and the elites know this, therefore they know how to play, uh, people into, that they know how to keep people in their emotional prisons that fit the narratives that they like anyway, because it makes them feel safe. I mean, some people like to be imprisoned by their own, uh, preconceived thoughts because it feels like home. And, right. uh, you know, I can see that, uh, you know, uh, sure, man. I mean, it, a lot of people, they don't think about stuff, stuff like this. And let me tell you, man, uh, I don't really think about stuff like this, but yeah, man, hearing you out, uh, it, it sounds interesting. Um, the next, what's up everyone, please visit palomaverdecbd.com for all of your CBD needs. If you need anything to take the edge off during the day, uh, to help you sleep at night, or just with a little bit of uh, body aches and pains that you might have. Um, Paloma Verde CBD carries all types of CBD products that can help you on that front. I use it basically in the morning. I put some tincture drops in my morning juice, uh, whether it's a green juice or orange juice, uh, I put it in my uh, drink. And then I also use it in the evenings to help me wind down to help me get into sleep. Um, and also I take some of the gummies an hour before I know that I'm going to do an interview. Uh, I feel that it helps me, um, just relax a little bit and focus on the task at hand of trying to make myself sound smarter than I am. Um, so if that is something that, uh, sounds like it's appealing to you, please visit palomaverdecbd.com. Use the promo code chingasos. That is C H I N. G-A-S-O-S, Chingasos, and um, get 25% off any anything over $75, uh, free shipping. Once again, visit palomaverdecbd.com. It is a business that my wife and I run, and we are very proud of it, and we want to try to help any of you that are looking for some relief. So once again, visit palomaverdecbd.com and get your cbd products gracias the next one that you had was called the meaning in a text uh how you should actually read uh can you kind of uh go into that a little bit yeah for sure um so that one is about basically like people are raised in schools right and they're taught how to read in school and they have this idea of what like reading comprehension means and maybe like in english class they had to like read some book about a boy and his kite. And then they wrote an essay about how the kite is a representation of his eroticism and how it's like him, like coming of age or her, like some shit like that. Right. And that like, people think like, that's like what it means to like read something is to just like read into something and to like, uh, and, and that's what like interpretation is. And then also on the flip side, like people, when they're taught to read, like how, how are people taught to read? Right. Like they're taught, like, sound it out say it out loud um it's like read the words read a paragraph think about what the paragraph meant then read the next paragraph and obviously like the the format of write of writing especially printed text doesn't do you any favors either because how is the information presented it's not a picture like you can't grasp what's being presented to you at a glance like you have to look at each individual thing like bit by bit by bit until you can kind of scan through like this whole like book or or whatever it might be right so there's something inherent about like learning to read that biases, like that way of just kind of looking at things like one letter at a time, 
and just like looking at things like one piece at a time. And yeah, that's, but on the flip side, if you think about like talk, not necessarily talking, but if you think about thinking, right? Like, how do you think about something? You can't think about something one letter at a time. It's not possible. We communicate things like one sound at a time, but we don't like, we think of things in, in terms of organizations and memory and history and timelines and like all this sort of stuff. And so my point in, in that essay is to basically say that like the point of reading something is to figure out the author's perspective and um, in a narrative, like in a story, right? That perspective is presented in one way versus like in a philosophy book or like a nonfiction book, that perspective is presented in another way. And you need to sort of recognize what you're reading and you need to recognize what the point of doing that reading is and how to approach it correctly. Because let's say if you're reading like a philosophy book, and you're just reading it front to back and you're just trying to like understand what's being said by just like listening to like every paragraph or just like reading every paragraph and then just like just going along until you get to the end you have got no fucking chance of, of figuring out what's being said because ultimately like the philosophy book is organized in such a way that they're presenting to you like different angles on one topic and they're expecting you to sort of put the pieces together at the end of the day and they're giving you like one chunk and then they're giving you a chunk and then they're giving you a chunk and then you you got to like kind of go back and be like, okay, like he told me this and then this and then this. So that must mean that like what they're getting at is this. And then you, you have to like go out of your way to sort of really understand what's being presented to you. And I think that the normal reading methods make that relatively impossible because all people learn how to do is like read things piece by piece by piece by piece and then try to put it together later instead of while they're reading, just kind of being like, okay, like what's this person's perspective and how do I really figure it out? And for example, like in a conversation, people do that naturally, but in text, it, it becomes a lot less natural. And I also, in that essay, sort of go into like how to be a good listener. And then I sort of give that as a corollary to how to be a good reader. What's the listening part? Because that's uh, what I'm going to, that's what I'm more interested in because I, uh, uh, I'm not a good reader, uh, but I feel that I'm a good listener and, 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 and I can make my, like you said earlier about how one word or uh, like Nietzsche said, or one of those guys, I don't know, whichever one of those about you said, like one word uh, uh, can mean a lot of connection of words. So when I do hear a word, uh, even if I don't ever even, I mean, cause I can't even spell with the shit either, man. I, like, so, but when I hear a word, I, I, I uh, in my brain, I don't know what other words are around it, but I, I feel that it comes with a lot of, it, it, they come like when I'm hearing that it's coming with a lot of, connections around each word or whatever you know and i try to make these little connections in my, in my head the best way that i can but um uh what, what is the, the the hearing part what's the best way to be a good listener yeah so so that's beautiful yeah i, I love that like uh you're noticing that like the way that your brain is kind of picking things up is that like it's sort of seeing like a net it's almost like throwing like a stone into a lake it's like you see this like ripple it's like you hear one word and then it kind of reminds you of other stuff and maybe you don't know exactly what else is there but you but you kind of feel that it's all connected a little bit. And um, yeah, so as far as being like a listener goes. So the way I set up the essay is I was kind of saying that like listening and reading are similar in the sense that they're both occurring over time and you kind of have to have a little bit of patience, right? Like when I'm speaking, uh, you're not interrupting me every time I pause to take a breath or I pause to think about something. But how do you know right? Like, how do you know that I'm done or not done with what I'm saying? It's because you're following the logic of what I'm saying. 
And then when that logic is sort of concluded and there's no segues, then you kind of feel like, okay, like that's like a completed thing. Right. And basically what I'm saying is like, when you're reading, you kind of need to do the same thing because you can't just like read sentence by sentence or paragraph by paragraph. You have to kind of be like, okay, where, where is he starting from and how is it opening up? And what's that ending point? Like, and, and it's so, it's so natural in, in listening, but like, I know a lot of people who, if I make like a point, like the way I'm making right now, right? Like there, there have been like multifacets to what I'm kind of saying or how, just generally like how I explain stuff. Like there's different aspects to it. And I'm like, kind of like taking you around something. Um, you know, like there's a lot of people who, when I'm done with like point A and I'm like kind of getting to like point B out of like this big kind of point that I'm making, um, as soon as I'm done with like a fragment of it, they'll, they'll, they'll want to respond. And I think that that's bad listening because you're not really following the logic. Rather, you're just kind of like hearing the words and you're just kind of trying to interject like whenever you can. It's just like, oh, that 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 little piece is finished. All right. It's it's my turn. That little piece my turn. And so, yeah, I'm saying like that's bad listening. And then in reading to because in reading, it's a lot harder to actually be able to connect the logic of the stuff that you're reading. But if you're not capable of doing that, it's kind of the same thing as being like one of those listeners because you're you're not really empathizing with the author or or if you're a listener like you want to empathize with the person who's talking okay um yeah man that uh that uh i'm trying to uh wrap my uh, head around all that um so i guess when i'm doing these interviews i come at it that uh i'm trying to learn Therefore, how can I speak up on over somebody and all that? So, you know, I approach it that way. Uh, also, I have the audience in mind that they'd rather hear the guests speak than me. So I don't try to interrupt. Uh, maybe I interrupt a little bit here and there just to kind of uh, make sure that we're on the same page a little bit as we're as we're talking and um but um i don't i didn't understand kind of what you meant by that um that they're they're similar to reading uh in that when i try to read my mind and maybe it's just, i mean i just start thinking of other stuff yeah. but when i'm listening I'm, I'm the same way when i'm listening i'm listening like and maybe this goes back to the word that when we're having a conversation like this it's more pure, mm-hmm. right? Back to that, that idea, right? It's more pure to me because it, back to, back to the same thing, because we're talking in a, in a, uh, we're, we're, uh, it's, it's, uh, not inferior because we're have to react and move and, and adjust the conversation. So it's more pure. It's even better. So that's why I've always liked to conversate, uh, to have conversations with people. I like to have parties at my house to always be able to talk with people um uh because i feel that uh i'm better at that and i feel that i i can get more out of it so um so maybe in reading i cannot read that good because my mind scatters away but in listening i'm i can listen because i can just i I respect the idea that it's live i guess or you know i'm saying yeah so yeah that's that's awesome uh thank you for bringing that up because that's yeah that's like very much at the heart of, of the article that, that I was, that I was trying to point out. And uh, so I'll, I'll get to that in a second, but yeah. So what you pointed out about it being more pure, right? So 
that's the thing that's so tough is because in a way it's more pure, but in another way it isn't. And this is the thing about like the, the part about like signs and signified, um, like the stuff we were talking about earlier with Derrida, like Derrida points out that I can say the word difference. I, I can just say the word difference. Right. And I could say it difference, difference. And there's, you can't tell that there's any like change in meaning between the two, but if I write it down and I put like a little accent, right. It might sound exactly the same, but in writing now I can tell a difference between these two things. Okay. And so he points out that like, when you're thinking of like reading and writing and you're, and you're saying that like, Oh, talking is like a more pure version of that. Um, yeah, I mean, that's totally fair. Like that's, that's how the ancient Greeks would have looked at it. Like they looked at it, like you have memory and speech and then the speech is being written. And then when you read something, you always read it out loud to everybody who's around you. Like that's like a very classical way of looking at things. But then Derrida says like, but wait, that's not necessarily true. Like writing has its own format, like reading and writing has its own sort of way of doing things. And that's like exemplified by the fact that I can put an accent here and it can totally change the meaning of something. And you would never know if you were just hearing it out loud. So, so my point is like, when you're reading, you need to sort of have an approach that is suitable to, to the medium. So when you're listening, right, like you're listening and it's live and, um, you're able to sort of be engaged and pick it up. And like, you can sort of listen for like fluctuations in my, like you can listen to the voice and the speaker and the presentation and like the performance of it. And you can sort of feel like pulled into it in that way. But then when you're reading, like it's, it's obviously so much more dry. Like you're just reading, you're just reading letters in a page and maybe you're like uh, kind of hearing them in your head and you're getting like real distracted. And I don't blame you. Cause imagine if I was speaking right, like in a tone that sounds like the way that most people read, you wouldn't want to listen to me talk either. Like it, it's just boring. So, but my point, but my point with all this stuff is to say that you shouldn't actually look at reading simply as an analog to, to listening. Um, I'm, when I was drawing the connection, I was kind of saying that there's, there's these similarities in the way that we sort of perceive information in the sense that like information is organized in a particular way. And we should be trying to find that organization whenever we're hearing somebody, but in text, it's actually just a little bit different in the sense that you can skip around in text. You don't actually have to sound things out when you read them. Like there's this reading technique that's called like iris reading as opposed to like, uh, so basically what some people do is like when they read something, they'll like kind of mutter like under their breath, like, and that's actually like the worst way to read. Ideally, what you do is like, you just kind of like scan really quickly you just figure out like, okay, this is the topic sentence. This is what's being said. And then you just like quickly move on to the next thing. And so like what, what reading affords you is the ability to sort of like uh, listen to something uh, multidimensionally, meaning I don't need to hear you from point A to point B. I don't need to read you from point A to point B. When you're listening to me, you have to hear me from point A to point B. You can't just like skip around unless I guess you like record it and rewind it. But with reading, you absolutely can. And as, as a result of that, especially when you're reading nonfiction, if you understand the way that things are structured, you don't actually have to read every word. You, what you can do, for example, is like, let's say there's like a chapter. What you can do is you, you look at like the topic, you look at the first sentence of the, of the chapter or just like the first sentence of the first paragraph. Okay, now you know what the chapter is about because that's how it works. In, in fiction, people lay out their thesis right at the very beginning in nonfiction. So they lay out their thesis. Now you know what it's about. And then you don't need to read the rest of the chapter yet. You can just take that thesis and be like, okay, all right, does this make sense to me or not? And then if it doesn't, 
Or if it does, you kind of, you, you, then you can kind of go on to the next paragraph and be like, what's this paragraph about? Okay. So this paragraph, the, what's the first sentence of the next paragraph? Okay. Well, this paragraph is about this. And then you're like, okay, so that's what that's about. And then you can just kind of like go through it and be like, what's, what are they saying? Cause if you try to like read it the way you listen to it, it's not actually going to work. My point in drawing the connection between reading and listening is to say that information is presented in a particular manner, right? And our brain kind of understands in a particular way. And then we filter that through the language of words, but the difference between read. And so, so that's the way in which reading and and listening are similar, but, but the difference between reading and listening is that you have the luxury of reading things over and over again, the luxury of jumping around, you have the luxury of sort of seeing how things are related. Like, for example, you could take a chapter, you could take like the topic sentence of every paragraph, cut them out physically, just like cut them out and paste, just put them down on your table. And then you could just see like how those things are interrelated. Like there are so many ways to approach text, which are unique from, from how you approach listening. And if you don't try to listen to a book, I think it'll be more engaging because yeah, I have, I I'm the same as you. I actually don't like, I I don't like reading fiction, for example, because I don't like to just like sit there like reading like point A to point B, like it kind of like kind of bores me. So, so yeah, I guess the idea is that the medium has an approach and if you try to use the approach of listening and yeah, in a sense it is more pure, but it's also a little bit inappropriate for, for what this is, even if they're both trying to get you to the same place, they have their own sort of way of doing so. Okay. Yeah. And, um, yeah, the, the, you, you mentioned that the reading part is a luxury because you can basically, uh, cut and paste your way through it differently, especially like someone like you that said that you never liked your sketchbook. Uh, you like to have loose sheets. Uh, yeah. so you, you, that means you have loose, uh, way of reading books. Um, yeah, man, I like, uh, and, and, uh, and, and then I guess I just, yeah. And, it just, and I guess it's just a point of preference because, uh, since I know I'm weak on the reading part, I have to listen. And, and then like, I think uh, we had talked about it yesterday on the, with the, with the, with the, the men's group is that I like the action. So I like this action that we don't, I don't know how the conversation can go or not go or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, I guess everybody's different, but yeah, uh, 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 I understand more now what you were trying to say. And um, the, the the most recent uh, article you have out is called uh, "Healing the Sinner." Uh, can you kind of uh, give a kind of a summary of what that is? What was that about? Uh, yeah, so th- so that's that's not really my thinking so much. That's more of an analysis of this philosopher called Kierkegaard. Um, he was he was a philosopher. He was around around the same time as Nietzsche, basically like the Industrial Revolution, like uh, 100, 150 years ago ish, and. Uh, yeah, th- they're both really interesting characters. I mean, Nietzsche wrote a book called The Antichrist. He hated Christianity. Um, and then Kierkegaard was was a Christian and he had like this idealized view of what Christianity could be. And yet the thing that was hard for me in reading Kierkegaard was sort of trying to empathize with his perspective. Like, like we were just talking about, like when you read something, you don't want to just read the words or like read what they're saying. You want to really like figure out why this person's talking the way that they're talking and what they're kind of getting at. But it's really, it's really hard for me to like empathize with the Christian perspective. I mean, first of all, I wasn't raised Christian or anything even close, like Hinduism's like a polytheistic pagan religion. Like it's, it's closer to like ancient Greek religion than it is to Christianity. Um, and then, 
Yeah, so I didn't identify it with, with it in that sense. I, I mean, I, I love Nietzsche. Like, The Antichrist is one of my favorite books. So, I mean, I didn't identify with it in that sense either. So, yeah, it was really hard for me to sort of figure out, like, why Kierkegaard was saying stuff that he was saying or what the point of any of it was. And, like, a simplistic interpretation would just be to say that, like, well, he's a Christian and that's what the Bible says. And so that's what he's saying. But in Kierkegaard's case, I don't really think that's fair because he's a very introspective type of thinker. Like the the way that he approaches things, like he has this line, like we don't feel guilt because we know what sins are. Rather, we realize when we've sinned, when we feel guilt, right? So he's not saying that like, because the Bible says so, right? Like that's not even really his point. Like his point is more that like the Bible is the answer and I deeply feel it that way. So I'm so like, it's hard for me to relate to that sentiment. And so, yeah, I was, I just like had to really dig through the whole book and sort of try to figure out like, why does he think that? And the ultimately, like the reason why he thinks that is like in, in, in my assessment, which is like as, as good as I I think it can be is that he's, he basically says like one doesn't become a Christian until one's deepest wish is to die. And his point is that Christianity is the thing that can save you from despair because what Christianity does is it commands you to love your neighbor. Like, like that's the main thing. Uh, Love your neighbor as yourself and love God. And he basically says like the example of Jesus Christ is that when is, is in this idea of neighbor love and like, who is my neighbor? Uh, And he gives an example from the Bible where he says like uh, a Pharisee asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus replies, the one to whom you do your duty, meaning like, it's the person who you just like decide to help. Like that's the person who you've been a neighbor to. And so it's this idea of like this universal, like human brotherhood, uh, which obviously it's like the exact opposite of what I was saying in like my on anti-humanism text. But, but that's sort of what he's setting out is like this idea of like all of humanity is, is your neighbor. Like, like anybody who you figure out who your neighbor is by doing, like you help somebody first, you don't decide who your neighbor is and then help them. No, you help them first. And then that person becomes like your neighbor in doing so. And so he's basically setting up this format where like you love your neighbor and you, you love God and in loving your neighbor, you love God. And that makes, that gives you a relationship to Jesus because that's what Jesus wanted from you. And so he's saying like, that's like the answer. And the, and the reason why that's the answer is because if you imagine somebody who's like, so in despair and in anxiety and dread that their only wish is to die, like, how do they get out of that? The only way they can do that is by breaking their own will, like their own ego, like their own desire, and then like prioritizing something that's greater than themselves. And that's what Christianity gives you an outlet for. And so for, for Kierkegaard, like Christianity was a medicine. It wasn't something that you raise your kids up to do. It wasn't like something that the church has a monopoly on. I mean, it wasn't like, yeah, it wasn't this like formal set of practices. Rather, it was like this way of looking at the world that you could only adopt once you were primed to do so. Yeah. So when it was your, when it was your time to it, like, so like, was there like destiny in that? Uh, like it was, um, uh, I mean, or, I, I guess like, I like, guess, like if you, so, cause like, um, you know, I'm not very religious, but I've always been open to trying to have the Holy spirit come into my soul and it just hasn't. And right. I feel maybe through your, like with the way you're saying it, maybe I don't need the medicine yet, but right. maybe one day I will. And maybe right. that will be the day 
that it was time for me to get that medicine uh, a, a yeah. little bit of that or or, or yeah I- yeah no you're, you're exactly yeah you're spot on and um yeah just to be clear this isn't what i how i feel or how sure I I'm, I'm just i'm just giving you like a breakdown of how he's looking at it uh yeah i, I feel very differently but but yeah no, i but yeah that's the point i'm basically in that essay saying that like kierkegaard's model of christianity is that it's a form of medicine that you need to be ready for and adopt willingly and that the the greater your ego is beforehand uh, like the deeper that that uh, Christianity can take root in you. Perfect. Um, and what do you have uh, cooking that's coming up uh, next on uh, something on your on your? Uh, what, what are you working on right now? Oh man! Uh, so I'm like halfway done with this essay on. Well, it's about like free will and determinism, and how like you know like that's like a debate. Like, is do you have free will or like uh, is everything kind of like planned out for you? And I basically write an essay about how that debate like doesn't actually matter too much. And there's like another way of looking at things that's it's a little bit better. And then when you look at things that way, like you can, yeah, it, it gives you like a compass that's uh, more beneficial than kind of wondering like, oh, do I have free will or not? Or like, is everything planned out? Like is things like it's, it's just a different way to look at it. Um, I'm like halfway done with that. I started writing it a few weeks ago. I just need to like sit down and finish it at some point. That's one thing. And I, th- I think there was like another thing that I, I was going to do. I, I got like a list of stuff. I But usually like the way I work on stuff is uh, I just like, I get the idea and then I like kind of like frame it out in my mind. And then I try to just do it in one sitting because I hate going back to things twice. But, uh, but yeah, so unfortunately I had to pause on on that last essay. So it didn't get finished in one sitting. And I'm always really bad at going back. So hope, but hopefully like I go back and like polish that up soon. Uh, perfect, man. So uh, thank you for uh, coming on the show. I feel that, uh, that you gave a lot of uh, 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 information that hopefully some of the audience members that have not heard of a lot of this stuff will look up um, for sure. I hope that they check out your Substack. Uh, can you please uh, tell people uh, exactly the name and where to, uh, where to get it? Uh, for sure, I'm going to put a link at the bottom. And, 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 and before you do that, I want to just say that, that I feel like, um, I'm going to have to get a picture of Penelope Cruz and put Selma Hayek's cut out Selma Hayek's tits and put her on there. And then I feel like, uh, the conversation and the visual will all be uh, on one. I hope, uh, uh, I say that with a lot of love that, uh, <laughs> maybe I just got to put, a. Uh, Selma Hayek's tits on uh, Penelope Cruz, but uh, yo, I'm not, I'm not really a tick guy. I'm gonna be honest. With you, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, man, can you kind of drop your uh, where people can check out your Substack and uh, and uh, that way people know what's up. Yeah, yeah. So my Substack is my first name n i d h i s h dot Substack dot com, and yeah, it's called the Book Unbound. I'll I'll be posting like here and there, and yeah, if if you like sort of the perspective and the, and the way in which I'm looking at things, and you don't feel like I'm some space cadet. Uh, nihilist evil guy then yeah I, I hope you check it out all right perfect uh thank you ned and uh hopefully uh we can get uh get you back on when we have some other stuff to talk about i really enjoyed this conversation man yeah man thanks for the opportunity i hope people like it and yeah this this was great peace man thank you see you later Bye.